The text that we are looking at is Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. We'll read it for us. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the days, the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here, looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of God. So like I told you at the beginning of the service, we're starting a new series. We're studying through the book of Acts for the next couple weeks as sort of our post-resurrection afterglow. Uh, The book of Acts recounts the Christian church since the resurrection of Jesus happened for its first couple decades. And that's why we're calling this series To Be Continued. Uh, The story of Jesus is not just the 30 or 33 years that Jesus was living on earth, but the story continues. The story continues with those early Christians who we're going to read about in the book of Acts. Acts is about the church post-resurrection. But there's a second, maybe double meaning to that phrase, to be continued, and that's to understand that this continues with us. That every day we are the church post-resurrection. And so therefore, the book of Acts is instructive for us in what it means to be a church that believes that Jesus rose from the dead. So we're going to walk through this book of Acts, but before we do that, I want to make sure you understand just something fundamental about reading the book of Acts. And if you don't get this, that's okay. I'm going to repeat it multiple times, but I encourage you to write it down if you're taking notes. And that's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive parts of the Bible. That sounds really technical, but don't worry, I'll walk you through it. Um, If you think of a description, descriptive, what is a description of something? It is just writing down or speaking what you see. Right? There's no value judgment to it. Like if you were to describe me, you would say, well, he's got brown shoes and gray pants and a sort of gray shirt. And you may not necessarily like the fact that my gray shirt and my gray pants are both gray and it's a little too much gray, but you wouldn't include that in a description, right? That's not a description. The description is simply to say, what is the reality? A prescription, prescriptive, you of course think of getting drugs from the pharmacy, right? Your doctor puts on paper a specific set of words that communicates to the pharmacist exact drugs that they're supposed to give you in a certain dose. And so pieces of the Bible can be put into these two categories, descriptive or prescriptive, portions of the Bible that are simply recounting reality without a value judgment, or portions of the Bible that prescribe for us specifically what we are to think, say, do, believe, etc. The book of Acts is almost exclusively descriptive. 
And I think that if we don't understand that, we end up in some pretty wacky places with the book of Acts. Unfortunately, as I hear a lot of people teach this book, they do teach it as mostly prescriptive when it's actually really not. Um, It's descriptive of what the church was like. And that's actually really helpful for us because it kind of takes the pressure off. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that there's all sorts of amazing and awesome stuff that happens in the book of Acts. There's also a whole bunch of messy and terrible stuff that happens in the book of Acts. You have hypocrisy, you have racism, you have neglecting of the poor and the widow, you have ministry leaders in conflict, you have churches that are not teaching what is true or living out what is true, you have people being martyred for their faith. And so we have to understand the book of Acts as descriptive. Now, it's going to show us things that we can take prescriptive passages and sort of infuse into the text. But we always just have to understand when we're reading the book of Acts, this isn't saying this is exactly what we need to do. It's showing us what happened to a church that believed the resurrection was true. And therefore, it's going to, I think, parallel a lot of our experiences. We are still the the church post-resurrection, filled with corruption and sin and messiness and, and conflict, and yet still a foundational belief that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, and that changes everything, right? Maybe one last thought on this. I hear people say this. They say, you know, we just got to get back to being the church in Acts. If we just got back to basics, that would be, that would be good. And I, I want to say every single time, have you read Acts? The church is messed up. It's always messed up. But that's kind of the gospel, Right? The good news is that Jesus chooses messed up people to do his work. And that's kind of going to be one of the big themes that we're going to study, not just through the book, but especially on this Sunday as as Luke and ultimately Jesus is setting the tone for this whole book. We're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. Um, The ascension of Jesus is, I think, maybe one of the more neglected major events in the life of Jesus. It's right up there with transfiguration. We kind of forget that it happened. So we're like, okay, birth, Christmas, death, Good Friday, resurrection, Easter, we get those ones. But the ascension is, uh, as one pastor put it, sort of the, uh, the detonator to all the power that Christ brought into the world. It detonates that power out into the world. So it's really a powerful moment for us. So Luke starts the account of the ascension this way. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, so our former book would have been his gospel of Luke, right? That we've been reading through for the last couple weeks. Luke and Acts, you really can see our companions, not just because Luke explicitly says that, but because they're about the same size. The style, of course, is very similar. And of course, the author is very similar. He says, you should have already read Luke up to this point, my gospel, In my former book, I told you that Jesus began to do and teach all sorts of crazy things. Now, I think this language is really interesting, and we'll unpack it later in the sermon, but notice how he says this. He says, this is what Jesus began to do. Not, this is what Jesus did, and now here I'm going to tell you about what the church did. This is what Jesus began to do, which the insinuation is Jesus is continuing to do things, isn't he? He says that, I told you all about that, and how after his suffering... He presented himself to many of the people that followed him, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. That word convincing proofs there is literally a word that means forensic evidence. So think like like tangible evidence, of course, the most obvious piece of which is his physical risen body. Um, But we should just be reminded that Jesus was not in the business of saying, you should just walk by blind faith. Um, Let me give you forensic evidence. Let me give you proof that this is something worth believing, that this is reality. 
It then says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, um, and then he spoke, the word, uh, spoke about the kingdom of God to them. The 40 days is significant only just for our church's life. Um, typically, the ascension is celebrated in the life of the church 40 days after Easter, in keeping in line with this. The problem is, of course, that uh, that would make the ascension celebration always on a Thursday, which at least ministerially is kind of hard to get everyone gathered together on a Thursday like you would on a Sunday. So it's probably part of the reason that we don't always understand the ascension is we just don't study it every year like we do Easter, Christmas, Good Friday. So we're studying it today to make sure we get that. Um, But that's where it comes from, those 40 days. He then says, after he's uh, speaking with them about the kingdom of God, that on one occasion he was eating with them. And the really interesting thing about this eating with them word is it's uh, kind of a unique word in Greek. It's uh, synolidzo. You don't have to know that word, but the, the word literally means to eat salt with. The text says Jesus was eating salt with his disciples, which sounds really gross until you realize it's something of a, um, like a euphemism. So maybe a similar way we talk in English is if I say, I need to sit down with that person. Like, you know that I don't mean that we're just going to both get into a room, both plop down in a chair and stare at each other for a while, right? You know that I mean something more by that, that I'm probably going to have an important and therefore probably long conversation with somebody that might require us to sit down. Um, In the same way, Jesus isn't talking about literally just shoving your face with salt. He's using this to describe a, a certain behavior, and we actually see this behavior outlined both in Leviticus in the Bible and also extra-biblical literature as well. The idea is to make you maybe like sign a contract is the way we would think about it, or put into place a legal agreement. So that's what he's doing. He's putting, to, putting his disciples into a legal binding agreement with him. And that has led some people to say this is sort of the alt-great commission, if you can think of it like that. You know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptize and teach. This is the alt-great commission. (laughs) Jesus is using this language to say, here's what I want you guys to do. Here's my commission for you. We're going to eat salt over this. So what's his command? He says, don't leave Jerusalem. (laughs) Don't you think that's hilarious? Here's the command, guys. All right, legal agreement. I'm binding you to this. Here's what I want you to do. Nothing. Just stay here. Wait. And of course, the disciples eventually do go out and do great things, and we have that commission from Matthew 28, go and make disciples, but I just think it's beautiful. That the first thing Jesus tells us to do is the same as that great verse we know from Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. But the first thing I want you to do as you think about what is your mission, what am I calling you to, is to remember that I'm the one ultimately doing it, and all you need to do is be still. So he gives them this commission, and then the disciples ask this question. They say, well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I'll be honest with you, almost every pastor I listen to preach this text uh, uses the, I think, the trope of, of, well, these disciples are so dumb, (laughs) right? Like, how could they still be thinking about restoring the kingdom to Israel? They still think Jesus is a political messiah, um, I'll be honest with you, I thought that for much of my life. I, I'm, I think I'm changing on that, though. I don't actually think this is as dumb a question as uh, very often people make it out to be. And I get that from how Jesus reacts to them. So they ask this question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't say, restore the kingdom to Israel? What are you guys talking about? He actually lets them ask that question and in a sense affirms what they're asking. He just nuances them a little bit. 
Right? What does he say? It's not for you to know the times and the dates. In other words, he says, yeah, I am going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but just you don't worry about when. I'm going to take care of that. And eventually we get to this idea, right, that, uh, that, that it's less about the when for Jesus and more about the what do you do until the when, right? That's, that's how he's answering this question. And so the disciples aren't necessarily asking a bad question. I mean, you could even think through like a, a thought process that gets you to that place. Okay, Jesus, you're the risen Christ. We believe in you. And, and you said some stuff about restoring the kingdom to Israel. So is now the time that that's going to happen? And Jesus says, well, don't worry about the when so much. Worry about what to do until the when. Now, I do think we need to pause on this just a little bit because I think this idea of restoring the kingdom to Israel can be pretty confusing for some folks. And the reason for that is uh, the word Israel can mean a number of different things. And if you're not on the same page with whoever you're talking about, about which Israel you're talking about, um, you can get very confused. So let me try to help you here a little bit. Um, The word Israel can refer to any one of five different things. So it can first of all be talking about the person Jacob, who God called Israel in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was called Israel. It can also talk about the people, the descendants of Jacob, right? the nation of Israel is usually how we talk about it. It also can talk about the modern nation state that exists in the Middle East today. It can also talk about the person, Jesus Christ. Think of Hosea saying about the nation of Israel, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Matthew taking that exact quote and applying it to Jesus and saying Jesus is Israel in one person, right? Jesus is fulfilling everything that Israel was supposed to be but failed to be so that God could redeem Israel. And therefore, anyone who is in Christ is also Israel. And the New Testament is replete with examples of this. Probably the best example is uh, from Romans where the Apostle Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, he says, Israel is not about a genetic line anymore. It is about faith in Israel reduced one. If you are in Christ, you are in Israel. And therefore, since as far as I know, none of you are ethnically Israel, um, you are still Israel by faith in Jesus. One more verse on this just to give us um, a little bit extra. Galatians 3, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham is the foundation of this nation of Israel. You are Israel if you believe the same things that Abraham believed, not if you come necessarily from his biological lineage. So when Jesus says, I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel, what he's really saying is, uh, there is going to be a time when I am going to restore the church, right? That's ultimately what he's talking about. And that comes to us on the last day, when God is going to take all sin and throw it into hell forever, recreate a new heavens and a new earth for us, the place where righteousness dwells and where we are going to live forever. That's the restoration of Israel that he's talking about. So he says, it's not for you to know. And that's what we believe too. We don't know when the kingdom is going to come. We can't say it's going to come on this day or that day or that there's going to be a thousand year reign until that day. We just don't know. Because Jesus says, we'll never know. That's only for the father to know. Okay, so after this, he, makes, he teaches them this thing about the restoration of Israel, and as he's teaching them, he is taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hides him from their sight. And while they're looking up intently into the sky, two angels come by them, they're dressed in white, and they say to them, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And this is the ascension, right? This is, this is the story. 
Um, now, this really is kicking off the book of Acts for us, right? It's saying this is what the book of Acts is about. It's about a church that is motivated by a resurrected Jesus who is ascended. It's that detonation of all the gospel power in Jesus through the church into the world. And so what I want to break our teaching into today is three points. Uh, the reality of the church's mission, the scope of the church's mission, and the hope of the church's mission. And I really was looking for a word that ended in O-P-E for the first point, but I couldn't think of one, so you're going to have to deal with just an incongruity between the points. I'm sorry about that. All right, the reality of the church's mission. That's what I want to talk about first. Um, the, the text has these phrases. Uh, Luke starts it by saying, I wrote in my former book, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do, insinuating that Jesus is continuing to do things, right? Jesus' purpose on earth is not stopped when he ascends into heaven. He continues on his mission. Therefore, the church has a mission, and we are to participate in that mission, right? What do the angels say to the men? They say, why are you standing here? Again, as if to say, shouldn't you be on your way? As one pastor said, this is not the book of the sits of the apostles. It's the book of the acts of the apostles. The church participates in the mission that Jesus is doing to save souls. But I do think that as Western modern Christians, we lose sight of that. And there could be any number of reasons for that, but one for certain is the fact that our country, and the United States as well, has been mostly populated by Christians for its history. And therefore, the idea of mission has just not been in the forefront of our mind very much. Now, that's shifting, right? think four or five decades ago, maybe even more, like being a Christian was something that was assumed. Now, Peter Drucker, he's an author, he tells this story about he was going to buy a house in Hoboken, New Jersey, so just outside of New York City. And he said when he went in to the bank to get his mortgage, they said, what church do you go to? And he's like, what does that have to do with me getting a mortgage? But that was the assumption, right? Like part of were you a good person was tied to whether you were going to a church or not. Now, back up. Or, well, I guess we'll go forward from there about 20 years or so, think like 90s, being a Christian is still pretty acceptable, but people are also like, keep their distance from Christians, right? Christians are okay, they kind of believe in some weird, old school, non-scientific stuff it seems, but, but they have pretty good ethics, we kind of like Christians. Now fast forward to today, and that's less and less true, isn't it? It's not just that like, well, Christians believe some weird things, it's okay that they're here. It's Christians believe some weird things and they're actually bad for society, right? They believe regressive things. They believe harmful things. So as, as Christians, we've kind of lost this idea of mission from our last 50, 60 years or so, but now I think it's coming into the forefront of our mind, which is why we need to think about it. What does Jesus say about the reality of our mission? Now, if I was to ask any number of you or really anyone who calls themselves a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think we would expose this really well. What does it mean to be a Christian? I think most people would say to believe that Jesus died for my sins and that because I believe in him, I'm going to be saved. I'm going to go to heaven someday. And all of that is very true. It's just not complete. If we stop there, we miss a big portion of what it means to be a Christian, which is that we have a mission to be part of what Jesus is doing to save more souls. Now, I think there's a number of reasons just for each of us personally that we don't live on mission, right? Of course, it's not part of just the way that we, we think naturally, but I think there are some forces in each of our lives that stop us from, from recognizing the reality that every moment is supposed to be lived on mission. The first of those, I think, is pride. Like, I think we have 
so much pride in ourselves that if we were to engage in a conversation with somebody about our faith and they would reject us or try to correct us, our pride would be hurt. And we know that and we don't want to feel foolish. And so we don't even engage in the conversation, right? We think of ourselves too highly that, that we have to be right in order to be valuable, that we have to be accepted in order to be valuable. We don't have faith that, that because we have already been accepted by Jesus, it doesn't matter if we're accepted by anybody else. Another reason would probably be fear. Of course, you have the chance of losing something. This is maybe the most common. We fear that if we talk to that person, they may not get angry at us or try to correct us, but they'll also maybe leave us or not talk to us anymore or not give us the opportunities that we might have gotten otherwise. That's certainly reality. But then we don't remember, of course, by faith that God has promised that because he lives, he is watching out for every moment of our life and will provide us what we need. As Jesus says, anyone who has given up mother or father or brothers or sisters or house or home or income or whatever for the kingdom will not only receive that back through the church in that you will get those family members right here, you will get those riches and that the family will take care of you, but you will also get a hundred times that in life to come. We forget all that. Third reason, this is the one that gets me, is arrogance. I get this thought sometimes, I'm like, well, Jesus, Jesus is not going to convert that person. They're never going to come to church. I mean, they're a Muslim or they're an ardent atheist. They're never going to come to church. As if I think it's like some sort of logical conclusion that I would come to church. That like, I'm so good that Jesus would choose me. Like, I'm the type of person that goes to church. I mean, if we believe what the Bible says, that all of us are by nature objects of God's wrath and enemies of him, then it is no more possible that God converts me to being a Christian than any other person out there. But our problem is we think we're a little bit better. They're not like me. (laughs) They're not the type of person. But I'm the type of person. Last one then is probably just indifference. We're so satisfied with our upper middle class life in one of the richest countries that's ever existed We don't really see the need. We either hide it behind social programs that take care of people's needs. We hide it behind a a distraction into ambivalence through entertainment. We just choose not to care about other people. And I, I think, frankly, this is maybe the most condemning for all of us. Like, if we believe that Jesus really did what he said he did and that it means heaven or hell for every person, then we shouldn't have a lick of indifference. Because one, one pastor said it to me, if we believe the doctrine of heaven or hell and we don't tell people about it, we either don't actually believe it or we're sociopaths. So which one is it? I mean, again, this is condemning to me, right? How easy is it for you to just go past people and not have a shred of care for giving them the gospel? And I need to repent of that. I think we all need to repent of that. But the point of this is just to press on us. We have a mission. Our church is not here just to exist. Our church is here because Christ is risen and he has called us to this. So that's the reality of the church's mission. I want to spend a little bit more time, though, on the scope of the church's mission. The scope of the church's mission. Uh, Jesus gives this commission to his disciples. After he eats salt with them, he, he gives them this commission. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the first part I want to focus on is the what of the scope of mission. We're going to do what, where, and how, but this is the what. He says, you'll be my witnesses. Okay, so what is a witness? 
class. It's somebody who says specifically what they saw, right? They don't say everything that they've seen, right? If you get called up to the witness stand on a murder trial, you don't start with, well, it all started nine months before I was born. It was dark. It was warm. It was comfortable. You don't, you don't just start with everything you've ever seen. You, you talk about specific things that you were called to witness about. So what are the specific things that God has called us to witness about? Well, thankfully for us, Jesus outlines those things. Actually, Luke does for us at the end of his gospel that we read. If you start at verse 44, Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And then he told them, The Messiah will suffer, rise again on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins we preached in his name to all nations starting at Jerusalem. And he says, You are witnesses of these things. This is what I want you to witness to. So if you didn't catch all those things and went by a little bit fast, that's all right. Here's the three things that Jesus tells them to witness to. The scriptures is truth. The death and resurrection of Jesus is historical evidence. This really happened. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he calls them to be witnesses of. So let me ask you, which of these is most difficult for you to witness to? I think every one of us should evaluate ourselves on this. Do we struggle to know the scriptures, to know them as truth, so that they are the words that come out of our mouth? And we talk about the things of life, the decisions, the struggles. Do we struggle to believe functionally that Jesus is actually alive? Like, is it, is it essentially an ethereal, abstract belief for us, or do we believe that a physical man actually came back to life and that that means everything for us? Maybe as a test of this, just ask yourself, how would my life functionally change if I found out that Jesus' resurrection was metaphorical? If it was metaphorical, would my life change functionally? It's an interesting question. Last one, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Are we a people who are marked by an eagerness to confess our sins to one another and to others? And marked by an eagerness to grant forgiveness? Because nowhere else in the world is offering that, but the Christian church does. And I would maybe encourage you to just like think about these things, meditate on these things. Which is the hardest for you to witness to? And then press that thought into your heart. You notice what's missing though? Of those three things that Jesus calls us to witness to, do you notice what's missing? My personal testimony. Jesus doesn't say, go out and tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Now, I have to be careful because there is value in personal testimony and we actually get personal testimonies in the scriptures. But we have to remember the context of those personal testimonies. They are always Christians talking to Christians. When Jesus calls us to go out and speak to the other, pe- to other people who do not believe what we believe, he does not call us to give our personal testimony. Now, you might do it. That's, it's fine. It's not like it's wrong to give your personal testimony, but I would say it's just not right. It's not what God called us to. So think about this a little bit, because this is the conclusion that I came to. I think I was trained to give my personal testimony to people as I was going to tell them about my faith. But I think the result has been, like with a whole generation of people who have learned to do evangelism that way, that we have communicated to the world, Christianity is fundamentally a subjective experience. Right? Christianity works for me, is what we've been telling everybody. Rather than Christianity is objective reality that you need to deal with. What does Jesus say? The scriptures, resurrection, repentance. 
I think if we were actually to say, rather than this works for me or see how this has worked in my life, to give people the historical evidence, this actually happened, and whether or not you like it, you have to deal with it. I think that actually would be far more effective and, and far more faithful to Scripture. Now, again, don't hear me saying I think personal testimonies are inherently wrong or bad, but let's put them in their proper place. He then continues with the where of the scope of mission. He says, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If you would look at this on a map, it would be like concentric circles getting wider and wider. But the main point of this is, first of all, that this is supposed to be local, right? This starts in my backyard. For us, that starts with the people that I know, that God has uniquely positioned me to reach, the family, the friends, the coworkers, the people that I see regularly, who I know in a unique way and whom God has created me specifically to reach. It starts local. But then, of course, it spreads, right? And here's where we, as the church in Mississauga in 2022, come into the picture, because even though the disciples actually did get pretty far in their work, they didn't get to Canada, right? But you did. Jesus called you to Canada. Jesus called you to Mississauga, to Meadowvale, Streetsville, to the people that you know, the people that you work with. He says, where does this start? It starts where, where you know people who need to hear the gospel. And then he gives us the how. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit calls on you, comes on you, excuse me. And, and I think this is just the most beautiful part of it. How do we do this mission? How do we reach out to people? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, specifically, the disciples, the apostles, received powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit that allowed them to testify with certainty that what they were saying was from God. God doesn't give us those gifts anymore, the gifts of miraculous healings, of raising the dead, of speaking in tongues, that sort of thing. But he does still continue to give us the Holy Spirit. And I mean, just look at the text. This says it right in here. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses. Right? You're not going to receive the Holy Spirit and be my miracle workers, even though that did happen. The main point here is you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to speak the word. And brothers and sisters, that is beautiful, good news. And let me tell you why. What is a witness? Class? <laughs> a witness is someone who speaks specifically about what they have seen. But does a witness just start witnessing about stuff? No, they're called to the stand, Right? Once they're called to the stand, then the witness speaks about what they are called to speak about. But I think so often we think witness means I have to go out and be the town crier. I got to go find people and start telling them about Jesus. That's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to be witnesses. Now, I think there's an, an opposite ditch you can fall into there that you start thinking, well, I'm not going to talk about Jesus unless someone specifically asks me about it. Um, let's be clear. You are given opportunities to be a witness. There are people in your life who you have conversations with that you could bring Jesus into. It's as simple as, have you brought that to God? Do you know what the resurrection of Jesus means about that? Did you know that you don't have to feel guilty about that because Jesus forgave you? It's those little moments, those little conversations that you can have where you can be a witness. Take the pressure off. God's not calling you to go out and find people to save He's actually put you in a position to be a witness. I think also connected to this is this picture that Jesus uses multiple times for evangelism, and that's the organic growth of a plant. Um, 
if you know anything about apple trees, you know that the apples on the apple trees start to show up actually pretty early in the season. Uh, but if you go and try to pick an unripe apple, all sorts of bad things will happen. You'll probably either damage the apple or break the branch, or if you do get the apple off the tree, it's going to taste terrible. So if you go try to pick an unripe apple, what do you do? Well, if it doesn't work, do you just give up on the tree? <laughs> That's it. That tree's done. <laughs> no, you know. You just got to wait. But you don't wait by never checking. You come back and you check week after week or month after month. You keep watching until you know that that fruit is ripe and you pull on it and it nearly falls off into your hand. And that's the metaphor that Jesus uses. Remember his disciples, John 4? Look, the fields are white, ripe for the harvest. Did those, those disciples make those fields ripe? No, God did. And again, I think we perceive evangelism, outreach, our mission as going to find fruit and yanking it off the trees. That's not our mission. Our mission is to be there, to be constantly checking so that when the fruit falls off the tree, we're there to catch it. When the person falls in their life, they fall into the arms of their Savior. So what does that look like practically? I think it means the people who are in your life, you're regularly checking to see if they're ripe yet, so to speak. But you're just asking those questions. How's life really going? What's bothering you right now? Have you thought about talking to God about that? Did you know I actually have a message for you that would, gives me comfort in situations like this? And they might totally reject you, and that's okay. They're not ripe yet. That's not your problem. Your job is to keep checking the tree. And it might take them 10 days or 10 years. But probably, eventually, if you're continuing to check, God's going to work in their life because you're praying for them, and God loves them, and you love them, and you're giving them the word. Now, it might not happen, of course. Some people reject God their entire life, and they will never be ripe, so to speak. But again, that's not our problem. The pressure is off. This is God's mission. We don't have to worry about making it happen. God is the one, Jesus is the one working through all of this by his Holy Spirit, and he has simply called us to be gardeners and witnesses. Okay, so that's the scope. Let's finish with the hope. The hope of the church's mission. I think a couple things that we have to see here, both from Luke's account in the gospel and also here for us in Acts, that give us the hope, they give us that foundation to go out and work the church's mission. The first of those is the reality of the resurrection. Right? Luke outlines this really well for us when he says that Jesus showed up to his disciples in the upper room and he shows them his hands and his feet. He says, look, I'm physically here and these wounds are real. I really died, and yet I am still alive for you. But then he goes a step further, and it, it's almost like a random note in this story, right? He eats this piece of broiled fish. What does that have to do with anything? He's once again proving his humanity, that a real human being died and is alive again, so much so that he has to eat something. So the disciples have this knowledge that Jesus is alive, and that sets them on fire, because they believe that their biggest problem in life has been solved, right? that they will die, but actually will live. And the second part of it is to see how Jesus ascends into heaven. Again, when Luke tells us this story, he says that he brought them to the vicinity of Bethany and he puts up his hands to bless them and it says, while he's blessing them. While he's blessing them, he is taken up into heaven and you find out from the other account in Acts, he's hidden behind a cloud, which means the last thing that they saw was Jesus' hands up in blessing. And that's still true. You think of what happened in the book of Acts, the next event, Pentecost, 3,000 people joined the number. 
I'm sure it was easy to remember. Jesus' hands are up in blessing over his church. But then you go to Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and they introduce hypocrisy and dishonesty into the church, and they're killed on the spot by God. At that moment, I wonder if it was harder to believe that Jesus' hands were up. When Peter and Paul get into an argument about whether they should serve the Gentiles, because Peter is essentially being a racist. I wonder if it was hard to believe that Jesus' hands were still up. When James, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of Jerusalem, is going to be martyred for his faith, I wonder if they believed his hands were still up. When Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, imprisoned, ultimately killed for his faith, I wonder if he believed those hands were still up. And we could go down the list. The messiness of the church. And yet over all of it, Jesus continues to keep his hands up in blessing. He continues to invite us to join him on his mission, to be part of what he is already doing, to enjoy the gospel of the mission, just like we enjoy the gospel of the resurrection, that this does not depend on us. It's never depended on us. It's always been about Jesus and Jesus doing the work for us, but he honors sinful, messed up people like us and says, come along with me. So think about what that looks like in your life. Remember the early Christian church, this Acts church, They did not grow because they invited people to come to church with them. In fact, that might have been one of the worst things they could have done because their religion was illegal. And you invite your average Roman friend in, he finds all these people who are engaged in an illegal activity and he gets to see all their faces. What does he do? He reports them to the authorities. Your whole church is imprisoned or killed. So what did people do? They just loved people. They just did life with them. They invited them over to their houses, ate dinner with them, walked with them, talked with them, did the basic little things of non-amazing ministry that you know from our series, Destroyer of the Gods, took over the Roman world. That's your mission. It's a burden that is easy, a yoke that is light, and Jesus calls you to it. So let's join him on that mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to join you on your mission, for honoring us sinful people with the glory of being part of what you're doing. I pray that you would motivate us by your resurrection and by your constant life over the church, that we can speak boldly, be witnesses to those who ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have, be gardeners who are constantly checking the fruit around us to see if this person is ready to hear the gospel. Take away our fear, take away our pride, take away our arrogance, take away our indifference. Lead us to repent of those things and then to revel in the gospel that you have set us free from those things to once again join the mission. Ask that for our church. Amen.